So Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when he, she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then jumping to Luke chapter 2, it says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn." Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was, when the angels had gone from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying that was told them concerning this child, and all who heard it marveled at those things which were told by them the shepherds. Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. One of the old translations says Mary treasured these things in her heart. Mary kept all these things in her heart and pondered them. She had quite a year. (laughs) Angel visitations. And then uh, she has has to deliver a baby while on a trip they didn't want to be on. The the town is so crowded, there's no room in the inn, so she gives birth. Actually, the Bible doesn't say ever that Jesus was born in a stable. We're just assuming that because she laid him in a manger, but it could have been outside in an alley. It could have been... You know, uh, out in a pasture somewhere, wherever they found to to sit down. Uh, it does say he was laid in a manger, which is a feed box, three times. So it may have been in a stable. But she has to give this very strange and rough birth. But then 
immediately some shepherds run from out of town and they're all babbling and Gideon wound up about angels appearing to them and telling them that this was the son of God and and then eight days later when they're or when they're uh, circumcising him and dedicating him to the Lord at the temple two total random strangers grab their baby from him and prophesy that this is the son of God this is the Messiah and just pointing out how many supernatural miraculous wild things happened in this nine or ten or eleventh month spread here and then some point somewhere between maybe three months and two or three years is when the wise men came we don't really know how old exactly jesus was when that happened they did not come the night of his birth so your nativity sets are all wrong they're not they were not there then it was three months to three years later Uh, but they come, these guys come from the other side of the world saying that God led them with a star and that this is the new king of Israel and, and it's just blowing Mary's mind here. There's this period, this year or three, this season of her life that is really hot supernatural activity. Miracles, angels, lights in the sky. I'm a virgin, but I'm pregnant. Uh, wild, wild stuff. And then life goes on. Normal, everyday life goes on. Because we have this next scripture from Matthew chapter 13 that mentions Jesus and his family at home in Nazareth. This is now when he's 30 or 31 years old. And it says this, when he had come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is there, this is not the carpenter's son. Is not his mother called Mary, his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus grows up. He's 30-some years old. He begins to travel around and teach. He becomes one of the local rabbis. He's doing some miracles. And he comes back to Nazareth, and the people there won't believe that he is some supernatural man, that he is a teacher from God. So here's how I'm drawing inference from there. We've seen the cartoons about Jesus as a little boy parting his bathtub water, you know, or parting the milk in his glass or what. But and maybe I, I'm going to guess that Mary, raising Jesus as an oldest son, Mary had a very unusual parenting experience. But uh, from this, I am inferring that the town, Nazareth, which was tiny, the archaeological site of Nazareth is smaller than our church property here. It's less than three acres. Everybody knew everybody in Nazareth. Just a tiny little hamlet of uh, homes in a, in a village. So apparently Jesus' school teachers and classmates and neighbors and extended family did not notice anything wildly supernatural about him as he was growing up. Are you with me? He, he was not levitating in class. When they, you know, when they went to synagogue, you know, he, he wasn't performing miracles in the back row with all the other delinquents while the rabbis taught, all right? Okay, so apparently normal life happened and Mary gives birth to four more boys and at least two more girls. 
Seven kids. That's a lot of diapers. That's a lot of meals. No washing machine, no oven. You know, a standard operating procedure for mothers back then. But after the night we call Christmas, after the wise men come at some point later than that, apparently life goes on. And nobody around them notices anything too particularly wild about Jesus. Are you with me? Okay, so Mary has this this period of time, this season in her life for a year or so where there are angel visitations, there are miracles, there are wild stuff and and a whole bunch of other stuff that accompany that. I mean, her her, uh, fiancé is going to divorce her because she gets pregnant and and he knows it isn't his, and uh, like, you know, all of the social rejection and problems and the traveling and the birth, but then there's more miraculous stuff there. These wild, wound-up shepherds come out shouting about angels, and, and then these total strangers come and worship him, and like, who is this boy? Who is this baby? But then, apparently, for the next 30-some years, life happens. I'm sure that people in Nazareth heard some stories. I'm, I'm sure, it says the shepherds told widely about what they had seen and heard, and everybody marveled. Uh, I'm sure that some of the closer family heard, knew that Mary was claiming that even though she'd gotten pregnant, she was a virgin, and they're like, yeah, yeah, wink, wink, yeah, sure. <laughs> Joseph's a carpenter, Mary's a mom. It's just everyday life happens. For 30 years after what we call Christmas. And then after 30 some years, her oldest son, who she remembers how he was conceived. She was there when it happened. It's a wild thing. She remembers the angels, the words, the shepherds, the promises, the lights from heaven, the star, the wise men, all these testimonies about who this baby is. And then 30 years later, he goes off and he starts traveling around like a lot of rabbis did in, in ancient Israel, they would go around and they'd preach in the synagogues and they would teach people and they had disciples. That was not unusual at all. There was hundred or more probably at the same time as Jesus. But Jesus claimed to be God. He said, there is no way to God except through me. He's performing miracles that nobody else has ever performed But he's out there telling people, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Some really wild, preposterous stuff. I'm talking about from Mary's perspective here. He's saying, if you don't come to me, you are bound for eternal hell. Good teachers don't say those things. The people who want to say that Jesus is just a good teacher... It's completely bogus. Good people don't say, if you don't, come, I, if you don't come to me, you're going to go to hell. Good people don't say, I am the only Savior you're ever going to have. Good people don't say, I am God. They are charlatans, they are liars, they are frauds. Or, it's true. Either Jesus was the most arrogant liar ever, or everything he said is perfectly true. There is no middle ground. He is the son of God, or he is nothing. He is not a good man, even. 
Good people don't go around saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood because I am God. I am the only one who can pay for your sins. I am perfect. Good people don't go around saying that. Hello? So now, I'm not here to talk about Jesus at the moment. We're talking about Mary. Mary has her 30 or 31-year-old son going around saying, I am God. If any of you have a son that says that, you're going to lock him up. (laughs) And Mary does go to get Jesus to put him away. She brings his four younger brothers, and they come to get him. Matthew 12, 46 to 50. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, seeking to speak with him. And then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brother are outside, seeking to speak with you. And there are hints from the other Gospels that this is not just that they want to say hi. This is they want to take him away. I don't know what they did with insane people back then, but they're, they're going to haul him off. You've, you're totally off your rocker, son. You're, you're, you've totally lost it. Okay? But he answered and said to one of who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mothers and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we're talking about Mary. From Mary's perspective, we know the story. We know how this all turns out. But put yourself in Mary's position on this day. 30 years ago, I had promises. There was glorious singing from heaven. There was angel messengers. And, and now my son is an absolute crackpot. He has totally lost it. And I have to, it got so bad, I have to bring his brothers and we're going to grab him and take him away to lock him up. And when she gets there and, she's to, and, they, and he is told, your mother and brothers are outside, he says, I have no mother. I have no brothers except all of you, my disciples. Think about that. From Mary's perspective, that rejection. She's not my mother. It's just proof that he's completely crazy. It's proof that my son has lost it. And now Mary, who has, Scripture says, treasured these promises, these things, these events in her heart. What do I do with that? This is not going the way I thought 30 years ago. This is not turning out well. My son is crazy. And I can't stop it. And it gets even worse. John 19. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. She is standing at his feet on the cross, where Isaiah says he has been whipped so badly that he's not even recognizable as human. She sees her son hanging on a cross, which is not a religious symbol back then. It is an execution. Some of you may know what it's like to have a son go to prison, but I don't think any of you have had a son sentenced to death. I don't think any of you have watched your son have the skin whipped off his back. What does a mother do with the promises from 33 years ago? We know the end of the story. Put yourself in her situation on this day. This is absolutely gut-wrenching. This is not just, 
a tragedy for her as a mother. This is the absolute hopelessness of the end of every promise that she remembers from 33 years ago that cannot come to pass now. Whatever that was, I was just a crazy 15-year-old girl. I dreamed it up, apparently. Because nothing can happen now. There stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. John is most likely Jesus' first cousin. James and John, their mother was Mary's sister. And Jesus is hanging on the cross here. He's dying. It's his, it's his uh, responsibility, culturally and even legally, to re, uh, provide for his mom. Jo- we're never told about Joseph again after the Christmas story. Joseph probably died very young. So Jesus has to take care of his mother. And even on the cross, he is loving his mom. He's taking care of his mom. He's thinking of her as he's nailed there. And he tells John, take her and treat her like your own mother and take care of her for me. And then John says, I did from that very day. I took care of her as my own mother. But from Mary's perspective, again, this is the end. There is no future. There is no hope. I mean, it would be heart-wrenching. I don't think that's a strong enough word. Heart-destroying to stand at the base of the cross that your son is on. And thousands of mothers did that in the Roman Empire. Jesus certainly wasn't the only one that was crucified. But I wonder if she thought back 33 years ago. I guess all of those people and I were crazy. What do we do with angels in the sky? What do we do with stars? What do we do with gold and frankincense and myrrh? And what do we do with angel Gabriel? And what do we do with virgin birth? And, and, and so many, what do we do with Emmanuel? And what do we do with, he's the son of God and he, this is the Christ? And no, he's not. He's dying a murderer's death. But Mary is mentioned one more time in Scripture. And it is one of the most hopeful scriptures in the entire Bible. It is beautiful in Acts 1. Jesus has just ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And it says in Acts 1 verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Come on. That is one of the most hopeful, beautiful scriptures in the entire Bible. We have no idea what happened. This is 53 days after his crucifixion. We have no idea how Mary saw him alive or how they met, or if they said anything, but she was there on the Mount of Olives when he ascended into heaven, and she was there in the upper room when the fire was poured out. She was baptized in the Holy Spirit. She spoke in tongues. She was one of the drunkards on the street preaching (laughs) about her own son and his brothers. 
his brothers believed. Not even death can stop the fulfillment of God's promises. When God gives you a promise, it doesn't matter who dies. He will still do what he said he would do. Come on. This is God's pattern. Mary's life journey. The parts of it that we know. This is God's pattern with every person in scripture and all of us. He gives us a promise. We have a prayer. We have a dream. We have a vision. We have a prophecy. We have a hope when we're young. And then everything goes wrong. And all of it goes the wrong direction. Think Joseph, not Mary's Joseph, but Joseph in the Old Testament. When he's 17, God says, you will be king and your family will bow down to you. And he brags about that and everything goes the wrong direction. His brothers try to kill him. One of them says, hey, no, let's not do that. Let's just sell him into slavery. When he's, while he's a slave, he's falsely accused of rape. He goes to prison where he's lied about and forgotten again. And then in one day, 30-some years later, when he's in his 40s, in one day, God fulfills the promise. After everything went wrong, after there was no hope, after there was no possible way, that that's ever going to happen. I am living in a dungeon. This is the end of my life. There is no way God's promises are going to come to pass. But it did. Come on. It is the pattern that God speaks. There's a dream. There's a prophecy. You're profoundly moved during worship or you get a scripture that you know that you know that you know that God just spoke that to you. You have a knowing, you get an instruction, you have a vision for what you're supposed to accomplish and how you want to serve God, and then real life happens. Hello? Our life is not going to be one exciting moment after the next. God's will doesn't automatically happen. We get told God releases this vision or the word into us, He plants the seed in our heart through the prophecy or when you were first saved and everything is flowers and excitement and the greatest things ever or when you first got baptized in the Holy Spirit, when you first experienced some miracle. That's God putting his seed in there. But then it has to grow over a long time. We have to make it grow. We have to be faithful. We have to obey what God gave us to do. We have to live out that vision. We have to Take the supernatural event that happened years or decades ago and treasure it in our heart. Like Mary. She held these things in her heart and pondered them. We have to live out of that supernatural event that, yes, it happened. And, yes, it's true. And no matter how the path of life goes, the ups and downs, the goods and the bads and the daily life problems, and the real, true tragedies. None of it can stop God from doing what he said he would do. None. But it will take a very long time in most cases. Come on. 
just because your feelings died out, there was a season in your life where your spirit was alive and hot and wild and fresh and, and then life happened. And daily life and bills and work and kids and responsibilities and routines and church gets boring and worships the same songs all the time and the sermons are the same and I don't hear God's voice anymore and I'm not interested in reading my Bible and oh God, why can't it be back when I was like when I was 22? I guess I was just a young, fiery, dumb teenager and I dreamed this stuff up. We all know teenagers are young and dumb. But the things you got from God are still true. The feelings, the passion, the fire that you felt is when it was real, when it was really God, it's real. And it's alive and it was God putting a seed in you. Come on, parents, you know that the moment when you conceived your children was pretty passionate and fiery and there was lots of feelings. But then those feelings kind of go away. And there's just, there's aches and pains during pregnancy and then there's diapers and temper tantrums and teething and bills to pay and mouths to feed and discipline and, and the feelings of the moment the seed was planted are not the same. But you created a life. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's every bit as valuable whether you feel like Slapping that little cheek or kissing that little cheek. It's still a life that you created. It. God put his life into you. So yes, there may have been a season in your past when, when things there was revival and there was life and you heard God's voice every day and it was exciting. And, and now you're growing that thing. It's growing in you. And the, the fact that the feelings went away does not mean you failed. It does not mean God drew away from you. But God and you are raising that thing. Whatever that vision is, whatever that dream is, whatever that promise is. Jesus called it a seed. He said, and he said there's, there's planting time and there's harvest. And what's in the middle? A long, hot, dry summer. Come on. Come on, you plant the seed and nobody blames the plant for not bearing fruit three days later. It takes a long time. And nobody is thinking the plant is failing while it's just trying to survive through the summer. Hello? And how far are springtime and harvest apart? The harvest comes at the end of its life. In fact, the plant, Jesus said, the plant has to die to bear fruit. Hello? When is harvest time of the promises that God gave you? When you're about to die. Good news. <laughs> and nobody's blaming the plant because it's just hanging on through 103 degree summer days. Come on. Come on. Hello? And just because the feelings go away does not mean that you have failed or that God has withdrawn. What is required? Faithfulness. Yes. Treasure these things in your heart and ponder them. Keep your faith turned on. Don't start listening to doubt. Oh man, I was young and dumb and fiery and I dreamed those things up and that wasn't real life and I guess you know this is real life and there's money problems and there's kid problems and there's marriage problems and there's church problems and it's all true.
It's real. That night you felt the fire of God in your body. That night you felt God, you heard God speak to you. The day that you met Jesus and knew the truth, it's as real now as it was then. And I understand that the feelings are different if it's been decades and you got a lot of promises that haven't come to pass yet. Mary watched her promise die. It was still not too late for God. It was not too late for God. So if you are hanging on to prayer for the salvation of your kids and grandkids, keep going. If you're standing for healing, keep going. If there is a vision or a promise or something that you know, that you know, that you know God gave you 20 years ago that you are supposed to accomplish or do or something that he said he would do for you, in you, and it hasn't happened yet, it hasn't come your way, do not give up. Not even death can stop the promises of God. In fact, I can guarantee you it will die. That is God's pattern. To give you a promise to kill it and resurrect it. He will take us to a point where we choose in faith to believe or to give up. He will. We have to, like Mary, treasure these things. Remember it. Keep our faith alive. Believe that it was real. You weren't just an emotional teenager or you had this, some magical moment as a child and you're like, yeah, well, that was back when I was innocent and now I'm not. Well, that's true, but it was still God. The thing you prayed when you were seven, even though you don't remember it, he does. And that prayer was just as valid as anything else you have ever prayed. Do you know how much God remembers that we prayed as kids that we don't even remember? Jesus said, children's angels never fail to appear before the face of God. The things you prayed when you were a kid, God knows it. And he's working on it. And it will come to pass. Come on. It will come to pass. We just have to realize feelings come and go. Hot periods of supernatural activity in our life, the voice of God and miracles and feelings and revival and fire and all that stuff come and go. What God commands is faithfulness. Faithfulness. That you believe what I told you back then, you just hold it in your heart. He knows you can't make it happen, but just responsible to obey. He knows you can't make it happen. Just believe it. Hold it. Don't give it up. Don't let Satan rob that thing out of your heart. It was real. It was. So yes, there's work to do. And there's strategy even for you to plan out how to work out obedience to God and what God has spoken. And there's pain and there's rejection. And there are questions like, are you crazy, Jesus? Seriously, his own mother thought he was crazy, and we do too. Come on, don't act like you haven't ever been offended with Jesus. Like, what are you doing? And there is death of the vision. There will always be a death of the promise. It's too late. It can't happen. I'm too old. I've gotten too hard and cold. 
That stuff has stopped for me. But Mary and Joseph and David and Abraham and John the Baptist and Peter and Jesus, all of them came to a point of the death of the promise. It was too late. Except that it wasn't. I said except that it wasn't. Come on. So as you do your best and your most conscientious effort to actually obey God and to live out His Word, your life will be a chain of supernatural events. Not a continuous everyday one, but there will be a chain of supernatural events. Mary had hers when she was young, when she got pregnant with Jesus and around His birth, and then again 33 years later, she is in the upper room. She is filled with Holy Spirit fire. Come on. In the middle, she lived normal, everyday life, and she lived pain and rejection and tragedy. But that didn't stop God's plan. It's not wrong to seek supernatural events. It's not wrong to pray for an answer to our prayers. It's not faithlessness to ask to see, but we have to walk by faith and not by sight. So push into that prophecy, that dream you have, that idea, that feeling, that desire you had to serve God in a certain way and then life kicked you in the butt. Or even God (laughs) moved the other direction, like with Joseph. Or Abraham. But 2 Timothy 1.6 says, Stir up your gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. What happened years ago or even decades ago, stir it up, turn it on, believe it again, turn on your hope. Don't let your heart get weighed down with crud as Ken prophesied, not even knowing what I'm preaching today. God wants to remove all the weights of that silt and dirt of life and clean your heart out and refresh you. Turn on your gift. So yes, we have a part to obey, but mostly when God says, I will do these things, we just have to hold them in our heart and not give up. We can't make it happen. We can't make our kids and grandkids choose the Lord. We can't make supernatural healing happen. or Whatever these things you're praying about, whatever situation it is in your life, we can't overcome these things or create these things on our own. We just have to hold them in our heart. In real faith. Revelation 17, 14 says this. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Those who are with Jesus at his return are called and chosen and faithful. That's the only requirement. Just be faithful. Do what you know to do. Obey what you know to obey, and God will perform his word in your life, in your family, in your body, in your marriage, in your finances. He will do what he said he would do. It is never too late. Don't get hopeless over seasons that aren't as supernatural as ones in the past. Don't get weighed down with the cares of this life. Don't let Satan's accusations or hopelessness or real, even real true tragedies happen. He will see you through. 
And even that does not cancel out his faithfulness. He is faithful even when we are not. But just be faithful. And he'll bring you what he told you he would bring you. Lord, we love you. We bless you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Even when we are not, you are utterly faithful. You are able to save to the uttermost. Thank you for the story of your mother. All the things that she went through. Seasons of excitement and curiosity and wonder. And then everyday life of cooking and cleaning and raising kids. And then rejection and pain and tragedy and and death. And then you filled her with your Holy Spirit. And she saw, even when it, in every way, it was too late. She still saw the fulfillment of every word you gave her when she was young. Thank you for your story of Joseph, Lord. What you gave him as a teenage young man. You fulfilled everything. Even when everything was lost. And the vision was destroyed. And life had ruined it all. You still are not limited in any way from performing your promises. So we choose today, Lord, to put our faith in you again. To dare to believe again. To turn on our heart and our hopes again. To hold these things in our heart. To live in that tension and even pain of knowing that you said it. And it's true and it'll come to pass, but, but it's not yet. Where we will live in that balance of faith. In that tension of belief. Forgive us for getting hard-hearted, for getting bored. For letting our hearts dry up. for wandering away from you with our eyes or with our minds, with the desires, the way we spend our time. Lord, thank you for the fire that you lit, for the words that you spoke, for the love that you shared, the truth that we learned in time past. And it's all still completely valid today. We hold it in our hearts. We treasure it. We treasure what you have done and what you have said and what you have given us years and decades ago. Thank you for all those experiences, for the dreams and for the miracles and for the words, the prophecies and the hopes and the visions and the ideas and the goals. We treasure it and we ponder it. We meditate on it. We remember it intentionally, not with nostalgia, but with faith, not with hopelessness, but with hope that it was real, that it was meaningful, that it was true. We choose faithfulness today, faithfulness in everyday life, to go to work and pay the bills, to love our neighbor, to raise the family. To do whatever you would give us to do in daily life. And we wait to see the fulfillment of every promise. Every promise. 
In Jesus' name, amen.